Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Brian Katlos for a conversation about the Umayyad Caliphate, so one of the first Islamic dynasties gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula. So the Iberian Peninsula using modern day terminology would be predominantly Portugal and Spain. If you've ever visited Spain, you probably quickly recognized the influence of Muslim culture on uh, its architecture in various spots, for instance. If you've been to Malaga, as an example, a beautiful city along the coast in, uh, in the south of Spain, you would have probably seen the Islamic fortress, the Alcazaba. If you drove into the uh, beautiful city of Granada in the mountains, an hour and a half to two hours-ish from Malaga, northeast of Malaga, you would have probably seen the uh, Islamic palace, the Alhambra, which has been written about many times over history as, be- as well, both in uh, fiction and uh, non-fiction. The last time I was in Spain, I uh, visited uh, a tiny idyllic village in the mountains in the autonomous community of Andalusia. It was only 15 minutes from the coast, a 45-minute drive from Malaga. It's called Frigiliana. And in the village of Frigiliana, they host a festival every year in August called Three Cultures. And the festival celebrates Christians, Muslims, and Jewish people living harmoniously together in society. So Dr. Katlos joins the show today to talk about the Umayyad Caliphate gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula, an occurrence in history that largely introduces the Muslim culture and people to Spain. Dr. Katlos is Professor Religious Studies, University of Colorado, Boulder, and Research Associate in Humanities, University of California, Santa Cruz. Both institutions are based in the U.S. Dr. Katlos is the author of a number of publications over his career, including a couple of books as examples, Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050 to 1614. That was published by Cambridge University Press and Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain. That was published by Basic Books. Welcome to the call, Brian. Thanks a lot, Andrew. It's really great to be here and have a chance to talk to you. So if we're chatting about the Umayyad dynasty, an Islamic uh, dynasty gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula at, at one point, what time period, just so we can get get the chronology here what what time period are we focusing on sure well uh, uh some people uh, might be confused initially because there were there were effectively two umayyad dynasties and two uh umayyad caliphates and so the first umayyad uh caliphate was the one that was established around the year 660 and had its uh headquarters its capital in damascus syria and it was in that year that uh, this family, which was an old, uh, powerful family uh, from Mecca, uh, established their authority uh, over the uh, Islamic community. Uh, 
uh, after a after a civil war, and so this was really the sort of you know what we might say is the kind of the first phase of of you know the glories of Islam, uh, this uh, caliphate which oversaw the expansion of the Islamic world uh, both eastwards and into uh, across North Africa and into Spain. So in the year 711, uh, Arab-led armies arrived in what is now Spain and Portugal and conquered it. And this was at the time that the Umayyads were ruling in Damascus. Now in 750, uh, there was another civil war and the Umayyad dynasty was overthrown by another related family who are known as the Abbasids. The Abbasids established a new caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, which had its capital mostly at Baghdad. Okay, and this is this is what you know your listeners will associate with the golden age of Islam and Harun al-Rashid and the the sort of thousand and one Arabian Nights kind of thing. Now, what happened was when the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads, you know, according to the political strategies of the day, what you had to do is you had to exterminate. The family that you just overthrew and so they essentially exterminated the umayyad family but one prince managed to escape this guy whose name was abdar rahman a young prince who uh, literally uh you know swam uh to safety as uh, his palace was attacked and burned he made his way from syria where he was living uh, to egypt and then to uh, ifriqiya which is now tunisia and uh, eventually gathered together the supporters that he had. He was being hunted by the Abbasids. And he crossed over to uh, Spain, which was at that point the kind of the furthest western point of the caliphate. It was really the boondocks. And mm-hmm. he managed to impose himself by force on the Muslims of Spain and essentially took over. And when he did that, he called himself, he didn't call himself the caliph because there was already a caliph in Baghdad and there was a very important idea in the Islamic world that there could only be one caliph. So he just called himself a prince, okay, an emir. And his descendants would rule Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain, until around the year 1000. In 929, one of his descendants, Abdul Rahman III, eventually did declare himself caliph. And so we have this second Umayyad caliphate. So this is why yeah. when you say Umayyad Caliphate, you usually have to specify whether it's the original, the real Umayyad Caliphate, or the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba or of Al-Andalus. Yeah, oh, okay. So so for when they first gain um, bona fide hegemony in large parts of the Iberian Peninsula, it's around, it's a 711, right? The year 711 AD? Yeah, very quickly afterwards, what happened basically was two things. One, the uh, Spain at the time, Spain of course didn't exist, but we'll just say Spain because it's easier than mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. Hispania. So Spain was under the rule of this Germanic people called the Visigoths. And uh, the Visigoths were in the middle of a sort of civil war. Right at the time when the Arab bar- uh, armies arrived in Morocco, and the Arabs kind of inserted themselves in this civil war. And so when they crossed over with their army into Al-Andalus, into Spain, they were met by the army of the Visigothic king, right? He brought out his entire army to, to fight mm-hmm. them. 
but some of his noblemen were actually siding with the Arab Muslims because they wanted to overthrow him. The upshoot was, in the course of one battle, a single battle, the Visigothic army was basically wiped out, decimated. The king was killed. And after that, the even though they were relatively few in number, the uh, Arab-led forces of the Muslims were able to overrun the peninsula. And they overrun almost, overran almost all of Spain and, and present-day Portugal, and even a good chunk of southwestern France. Okay, and, and is that, that battle, that, that time, is that, does that start at 711? Absolutely. I just yeah. want to clarify that. Okay, and would you call the Umayyad, um, the dynasty, using that, that, that term broad, broadly, would you call that at that point, was that a caliphate within the Muslim Empire? Well, the, one in the, the, the Umayyads in Damascus were reigning as caliphs of Islam at this time until they were overthrown. Shortly after that, in 750, they were overthrown. Okay, okay. Um, who was the... Actually, let's talk about the Visigoths for a moment, because they're, they're, they're there at the time. Can you speak more about who the Visigoths were, um, wh where they originally came from, and the tension that was uh, there in the Iberian Peninsula, just to ha so everybody can understand the milieu a little bit more? Sure. So the Visigoths were one of these people that we usually, or we often refer to as Germanic barbarians. These uh, uh, groups originating in Eastern and Central Europe that starting in the third and fourth century started to invade and undermine the Western Roman Empire, right? And so after, really after 300, we have uh, what had been the Western Roman Empire, uh, what's now France, Spain, Northern Italy in particular, being overrun by these barbarians. And these barbarians set themselves up as kings. So the Visigoths, uh, eventually ended up in Spain and they ruled over, they took over what had been Roman Spain and they ruled over it as a kind of case apart. And the reason for that was because by this time, the Roman empire had officially converted to Christianity, Catholic or Orthodox Christianity. And so the people, the indigenous people of the Iberian Peninsula of Spain were Catholics. Now, these, Vis these Visigoths were Christians, too, but they belonged to a different type of Christianity, which was called Arianism. And okay. so they considered themselves, they considered the, the, the Visigothic nobility and the people over, over whom they ruled considered each other heretics. And this was kind of a, a politically difficult situation, because given that their population was almost entirely Catholic, the Visigoths kind of needed the help of the Catholic Church to govern their kingdom. Okay? Mm -hmm. So eventually, mm -hmm. in the 600s, one of these Visigothic kings converted to Catholic Christianity. And that kind of helped solve the problem in terms of the integration of the population of Spain with these rulers. Okay. The problem was that, you know, barbarians being barbarians, uh, they didn't really like... Uh, recognizing the power of their own king. And this was a kingdom which was constantly being riven by factionalism, intrigue, and warfare between different members of this ruling Visigothic elite. And so as we get towards 711, 
the year that the Arabs just happened to arrive on the shores of Spain, right, there had been a sort of festering civil war going on for about a generation mm. between different, different families who each thought that their candidate should be king. And so this, this kind of presented the opportunity for uh, the Arabs, who were very few in number at this time, handful of Arabs backed up by an army of recently converted North Africans, people we usually call Berbers, right, were recently converted from paganism, mostly Islam. And it gave them the opportunity to, to score this, this sort of, this incredible signal victory, which is that the Visigoths were divided and weak, and with the help of some of the Visigothic nobility, the Arabs were able to, uh, to take over. Okay, and you mentioned um, the, the Berbers, and I was going to go there with a question uh, shortly. Um, can, you, can you describe the territorial uh, demarcation of the Umayyads Caliphate's land at this point, just so someone can understand the scope of their um, hegemony in the, in, in the world? So what that, what that is, if you are to describe that on a map. And then when they're crossing for, the, for, for battle, um, let, yeah, let's, let, let's, start, let, let's start there. Uh, and then I'll probably have a follow-up question more about the actual, uh, what, what the composition of the army itself. Okay, so yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, one of the incredible things about the early history of Islam is just how rapidly... Uh, the uh, Arab Muslims uh, managed to uh, expand politically once they came out of the Arabian Peninsula. And so, you know, from the time of, of, of the death of Muhammad to the establishment of, uh, of the Umayyad Caliphate in Damascus, which was really only a space of a few decades, mm -hmm. the Islamic world went from basically being the area around Mecca and Medina right and some of the arabian peninsula to stretching almost as far east as the indus river right and almost as far west as the atlantic right it included egypt it included some of the mediterranean islands like crete and majorca although those and sicily all those those tended to be conquered a little bit later and it stretched it was starting to stretch upwards into central asia northern Iran. So it was an immense empire. But in a way, its size is deceiving. Because, you know, the problem with empires at this time is that, you know, communication was very primitive. And so, although in, you know, in a sense, the caliph in Damascus was the ruler of this immense territory, his ability to rule was really constrained by the degree to which he could force his underlings to obey him. And he was constantly faced with the problem of underlings, governors, for example, in far-flung provinces who were either trying to rebel against him or withhold taxes or kind of convert their governorships, their provinces into these little kind of independent kingdoms. So it's a little bit, you know, deceiving to think of it as an empire in a kind of organized sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it really okay. didn't function that, okay. that way. Who was the... Uh the the caliph at this at this point in time if we're talking around uh, seven eleven 
Uh, so that would have been, uh, I believe, I'm terrible with names and dates, as many historians mm. are. Yeah, don't, that don't would worry be, about it. Uh, I believe Abdul Malik and his son Al Walid, who were really the the two caliphs that established uh, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate as this, you know, incredible uh, imperial enterprise. These were the caliphs that built, for example, the Dome of the Rock, mm-hmm. the Great Mosque of Damascus and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, was, what were the ambitions of that, of that um, the, the caliph at that time? And was the pursuit of hegemony in uh, Iberia, was that sanctioned? Like, did they know that that was going to happen all the way back in Damascus? Yeah, great question. You know, so the idea with, with Islam, like, many ideologies of liberation islam was both a religion and an ideology of of liberation is that it's incumbent on people to bring this ideology to others right so part of the 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 kind of idea behind the islamic expansion was not just conquest which certainly was part of it right but the notion that everybody should have the everyone in the world should have the opportunity to live under islam it's kind of like the way that uh, the modern West has dealt with uh, democracy and capitalism. We extend democracy and capitalism, or we say we want to extend it to everyone in the world because it's a better system and it will make people free. So there was a vague sense, right, uh, a vague but real sense that, that Islam should eventually, you know, uh, contain the world, right? But that's very different from conceiving it as there being some kind of a a concrete strategy. Certainly, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate's main enemy was the Roman Empire, which had its capital at Constantinople. And there was a kind of strategic consideration, you know, perhaps a vague one that, you know, you could outflank the Roman Empire by maybe moving through Europe, right? Mm. So that was there too. But really, what it mostly came down to was opportunity. You know, the, the Arab Muslims, came on the world stage as conquerors at, at, at the very time that the two dominant empires of the world, Rome and Persia, had been weakened by uh, warfare and by internal tensions. So in very quick order, uh, they destroyed the Persian Empire and appropriated its lands, and they managed to take over most of what had been uh, the Roman Empire, at least in uh, North Africa and in the Near East. They never conquered Constantinople. So part of the reason of their success was that because these empires were weak, it was rather easy. They were kind of drawn forward into these situations where, you know, conquest was easy, particularly because they had a certain modus operandi. They didn't come in to burn and destroy things. The the MO of Islamic conquest was that, for example, a Muslim army would arrive at outside a town or city and they would say, send envoys and they would say okay this is the deal right we've got our army here you have two choices one choice is that you can acknowledge us as your new rulers if you do that and you pay taxes to us and you don't rebel against us if you're a christian or a jew we'll allow you to keep practicing your religion right all you have to do is pay us taxes now on the other hand if you don't do that then we will fight you and if we fight you, and if we conquer you by force, then you become our loot, our booty. And we can do whatever we want with you. 
And so they used this kind of carrot and stick approach. And they really had to, because, you know, these people were two generations out of the desert, as it were. They didn't have the, the wherewithal to run an empire. And so they needed the collaboration of the native peoples, particularly the native elites, in order to make their empire work. And so, in a way, you know, the Islamic conquest, while there was certainly violence and coercion, there was also this kind of reciprocal negotiation between local elites and the new rulers of the caliphate. And many of these local elites actually, you know, as far as they were concerned, it was maybe in some cases better to be ruled by Damascus than to be ruled by Constantinople. Okay? So the Muslim armies were drawn into this power vacuum. And this is what drew them over from North Africa into Spain. They didn't have any grand plan to conquer Europe because Europe conceptually didn't really exist at the time. And in any case, Northern Europe was this economically underdeveloped and primitive backwater. It wasn't, it wasn't a very profitable place to conquer, right? The, the most important places to conquer all lay in the East, where there was wealth and people and a sophisticated culture. Northern Europe was really an opportunity and an accident. And so they, there wasn't really a commitment to, to, to invading and conquering Europe, as it were, as some historians, you know, notice, no, notably Edward Gibbon, in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, kind of played up this notion that Europe was being invaded. And it was, you know, that Charles Martel, the, you know, the leader of the Franks that turned back the Muslim tide. It didn't really happen in that way. Yeah, and when you're referencing Northern Europe, you don't mean in today's terms Northern Northern like Scandinavian. You just mean no. you just mean like Europe itself. Yeah. Okay, Europe, Europe beyond the shores of the Mediterranean. I understood. I wanted to clarify that. Um, yeah. it was in, it's interesting what you're what you're saying. Um, what's what's known about the army itself that makes the pivotal um, in, invasion? In terms of the size of the army and what's what's known about uh, the composition of the uh, people between Berbers, um, Arabs, and other potential tribes from Africa. Sure, good question. Well, you know these these sorts of questions are really hard to get at with any mm -hmm. kind of precision for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't have many contemporary sources of the invasion. You know, the first mm. uh, surviving Arabo-Islamic source we have for the invasion dates to about 100 years after it, which okay. is an incredibly long time. And we have a couple of uh, earlier Christian sources that were written in, the gener in Spain in the generation just after the invasion and conquest, but they don't really go into details about you know, the battle and the composition mm -hmm. of the armies and stuff like that. And in any case, you know, if there's one thing you cannot trust medieval chroniclers on, it's numbers. Mm -hmm. They tend to, uh, in our view, exaggerate, you know, they'll say an army had 50,000 people, and it's really meaningless. All it means is it had a lot of people in their view. So it's really hard to get at it with any precision, and in fact, you know, historians still argue about where this battle even took place exactly, right? So the details are shaky. But what we can say is that by the time the Arabs arrived in Morocco 
and were conquering Morocco, right? There were very few actual Arabs in that army, okay? It was the leadership that was Arab or the high leadership. But even within that high leadership, many of these people were actually new converts to Islam, many of whom had either been taken prisoner in earlier campaigns or were the children of people who had been taken prisoner and enslaved in earlier campaigns. So, for example, the guy who was the governor of the Islamic West, an individual named Musa ibn Nasser, right? He was actually of Syrian or Palestinian origin, probably Christian, and his father had become enslaved by one of the uh, uh, caliphs in the course of the, you know, the conquests of, uh, of Syria and Palestine and converted to Islam. And so he was a convert. The actual person who led the first wave of the invasion, this was a subordinate of Musa's, whose name was Tariq ibn Ziyad. He's the person that Gibraltar is named after. Jebel Tariq means the mountain of Tariq. Mm-hmm. Tariq was a, was a Berber, was an Amazigh. And uh, he too uh, became Muslim as a consequence of a sort of forced conversion resulting from probably his enslavement as a prisoner of war. So the actual Arab element was quite small. And what we had was the bulk of the army was made up of these indigenous North African peoples, the Berbers, as they're usually called, who had converted to Islam. So the thing that you have to remember is that Islam had a very interesting approach to other religions, right? Because Islam considered itself to be the religion of the God of Abraham, just like Judaism and Christianity, Muslims recognized uh, Judaism and Christianity as legitimate religion. They were just wrong, but they were in the right line and they were acceptable and legitimate, right? However, the one thing that was antithetical to Islam was paganism and idolatry and polytheism, right? So when, uh, when the Arabs expanded into a place like Egypt, which was quite thoroughly Christianized, they didn't really have a religious policy. They were happy to let the native Mm. peoples remain Christian. However, when they encountered the Berbers, most of these Berbers were pagans. And according to uh, Islam, when you encountered a pagan, there was only two ways, two outcomes. Either the pagans had to convert to Islam and recognize the true religion, or you would fight them, right? And so what happened was, is as the Arab army rolled westward across North Africa, it uh, conquered uh, Berber tribes who converted to Islam, and then they became part of this new army. So it kind of snowballed across Mm. West Africa. And by the time we get to uh, Tarek ibn Ziyad crossing over to Spain, we have a handful of Arabs and a big army made up almost entirely of these converted Berbers, some of which might have been genuine converts, others maybe not so much. So if the constituents of a an area that they've conquered is, for instance, Jewish or Christian, most of the time they allowed them to maintain their religion. They would just pay a higher tax. Yeah, in fact, you know, and this is another one of the kind of ironies of, 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 of early Islam, 
Islam presented itself as a universal religion which was open to everybody and everyone should come to 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 God through through uh, you know the Quran, right? But at the same time, it was also an Arab enterprise, and it was designed in order to make the Arabs rich and powerful, and so there was not a lot of uh, encouragement for conquered people to convert to Islam, because basically the Arab Muslims didn't want to share the proceeds of the empire. So they were just fine with people staying as Jews and Christians. As you pointed out, you know, in most cases they had to pay higher taxes, but also they didn't receive the benefits of the conquest. They didn't receive incomes from the conquest. So it was a way of preserving the special status and wealth of the Muslim Arabs. So I, I believe I read this before. So, uh, and, I, and I'd like to know what you believe the veracity of, uh, of this is. So uh, the, the, the general Tariq, who you mentioned earlier, Ibn uh, Zaid, um, successfully invades um, the peninsula initially. What I, what, I, what I believe I read was his superior later on finds out and is upset in some way um, and then he gets involved in some way can you can you speak about that and the veracity of that sure well again you know these stories are kind of lost in the mists of time and we only mm-hmm. learn of them uh, in sources that were that were written much later but the the general kind of contours of the narrative as it's accepted are is that you know Tarek ibn Ziyad this you know, Berber commander, kind of undertook the uh, conquest or the invasion of Al-Andalus on his own initiative. An opportunity arose, all right? He got some help from a a Christian ruler, uh, a local Christian ruler, who offered to help take his men across the Straits of Gibraltar. The Arabs didn't really have boats. They weren't big on naval technology being people of the desert, at least the the Arabs from Mecca and Medina. And so, yeah, it was an unexpected campaign. And it was, the success was unexpected. And so naturally, I mean, think of politics. All of a sudden, Musa ibn Nasser sees that his underling has scored this massive, uh, massive thing. And so Musa says, put the brakes on until I get over there. So Musa (laughs) comes over with his sons sidelines Tariq ibn Ziyad and uh, and kind of takes over the enterprise. So there's a, a funny story about this, I'll tell you uh, if we have time. And mm-hmm. It kind of shows how uh, myth and history mix in surprising ways that often actually, even though it's mythology or legend, gives us interesting insights. So the legend was that one of the things that uh, that Tariq discovered when he conquered Islamic Spain was this table, kind of magical table, which was said to have belonged to the biblical King Solomon, right? And it was this table that was covered with jewels and so on and so forth. And when Musa came over, Musa saw the table too, and he said, oh, I'm interested in having that table. Tariq had removed one of the table's legs secretly, kept it hidden to himself. So Musa completes the conquest of Islamic Spain. And now as a consequence of that, he's got he's to send uh, part of the loot back to Damascus, to the Caliph. 
And so the caliph in Damascus, Al-Walid, right, sends a message and recalls Tariq and Musa back to the capital. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Musa comes with all of this loot and he presents the caliph with this table of Solomon, right? He's replaced one of the legs with a new leg. And uh, the caliph kind of looks at it and says, well, you know, the legs don't match. What's up with that? Mm. And Musa can't really explain it. And so Tariq produces the missing leg and says, this is the leg. And he accuses Musa ibn Nasser of having withheld some of the loot from the caliph. And so Musa ibn Nasser is uh, disgraced and never returns to Al-Andalus, mm. and Tariq ibn Ziyad disappears from history too. So maybe there was a table, maybe there wasn't, probably not from King Solomon. But the point is what it shows us is that there were all of these internal tensions in operation during this Islamic conquest. So just as the Christian side was divided amongst itself, we shouldn't imagine that the Muslims, uh, you know, uh, constituted this united front uh, themselves. They too were riven by intrigues and uh, and politics and so on. In fact, Musa ibn Nasser's son, Abdul Malik, who became governor after him, was assassinated by his own men mm-hmm. when they accused him of trying to become the new king of Spain. Did the Umayyads ever try to invade the Iberian Peninsula prior to 711? Well, they hadn't really arrived far enough to do it. There were a couple of kind of probing missions that okay. uh, that took place in the years before 7-11. I think maybe the earliest one might have been in the late 600s. But these were sort of, uh, uh, again, opportunity raids. And they weren't part of a, a, you know, a sort of a consistent strategy to conquer all Andalus. In fact, after Al-Andalus was conquered, Al-Walid, the caliph in Damascus, said we should pull back from Al-Andalus. He said it's a it's a cold, nasty place. It's too far from home. If we if we leave Muslims there, they might convert to Christianity. So we should just we should just pull back into North Africa. So you know there were a lot of ambivalences about the Islamic expansion. It wasn't this, you know, gung-ho mission to conquer the world by the sword. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, when scholars reference Andalus, would that be present-day Andalusia, or would that, or would that uh, territory change a bit? Well, there's a sort of confusion of terminology. So the modern Spanish, the very south of Spain, is referred to as Andalusia. And Andalusia comes from Al-Andalus, mm-hmm. the Arab word. Mm-hmm. No one's really sure where the Arab uh, word Al-Andalus came from. The latest, and I think the most convincing suggestion is that it comes from the Visigothic word Al-Andalus, which means like a, mm-hmm. like a noble estate. But anyways, so the Muslims referred to all of Spain and Portugal, the entire peninsula as Al-Andalus, right? And later in modern Spain, that was reduced to the South Andalusia, which was of course the last, you know, the last bastion 
of Muslim rule uh, in the 1400s in Spain. So you just have to be careful. Andalusia is the modern Spanish province, or or uh, yeah, province, and mm -hmm. Al Andalus is the Arab word for all of Spain. I'm happy I asked that question then. Um, okay, so the initial battle happens. They they get they get settled. Um, can you describe the extent of uh, how much they end up conquering for 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 land and how many years that takes? Sort of like the at the highest the apex the highest point well the the initial expansion is very very rapid basically once they had uh once they had defeated that visigothic army there was nobody in their way okay and so very few of the cities of spain the towns of spain resisted most of them surrendered there was a few that resisted for a little bit so really it was just a couple of years and effectively all of spain except for the sort of mountainous fringe along the atlantic north came in some way under muslim rule now what that rule was is often very kind of ephemeral acknowledging their superiority paying them some taxes like in the form of food mostly right but the muslims also kept going the visigoths had also ruled over the south of france southwestern France. So when the Visigothic Kingdom collapsed, the Muslim army went over the Pyrenees and also established their rule over the south of France. From there, they launched raiding parties into the north of France. Hmm. What drew them to the north of France? Churches. One thing that was really convenient, and the Vikings found this too a couple hundred years later, was that medieval Christians liked to put all their gold and jewels in these church buildings. So if you wanted to attack a town and get the best loot, you knew exactly where to go. And so this is kind of what drew Muslim raiders into the north of France. It wasn't so much the urge to conquer, but they wanted to get at that gold and jewels that were stored in those churches. Okay. Can you, um, uh, for the sake, sake of time, we probably won't spend a lot of time on this point, but can you, can you describe then what, uh, stops their um, territorial gain because obviously it's, it doesn't just keep you know growing you know um, perpetually forever so what what is the what's the uh, event or events that um, halt their gain well there's there's two answers to that and the sort of the one that's presented tr traditionally is that it was uh, they were stopped at what is usually known as the Battle of Tours. Okay. Tours is in uh, the north of France, uh, you know, maybe 50 miles south of Paris. And in the year 732, one of these raiding parties, a large raiding party, set out uh, with the objective of attacking and looting the church at Tours. Now, at that time, the north of France was ruled by uh, people known as a dynasty known as the Merovingian Franks. Okay. Right? And the Frankish army, under the leadership of an individual named uh, Charles Martel, came out and uh, responded to uh, the Arab, the Muslim Arab invasion. And this was not the first, but one of the first decisive victories in battle that uh, the Muslims 
suffered, right? And after that, it would be, you know, several decades or the better part of a century before they ventured that far north into France again. Now, traditionally, again, as in Edward Gibbons' decline and fall of the Roman Empire, this has been held up as this turning point in European history. Charles Martel saves Europe from Islamic domination. Well, it wasn't quite like that because, again, there was no real plan to conquer France. The plan was to raid the churches. The problem that the Muslims had was that their armies, as they moved across this territory, in each place they had to leave people to garrison the territories and make sure they didn't rise up against them. So as they went, their numbers were getting fewer and fewer, and they were getting stretched thinner and thinner. And so they could not afford to have too many losses in battle. Because if they did, they would not have enough warriors left to hold their territory. So they kind of strategically pulled back to the south of France. And they remained in the south of France for a few decades. And then eventually they pulled back south of the Pyrenees. Mm. And this is when we see the sort of Islamic Spain, the territorial uh, area of Islamic Spain consolidating. Okay. So it was related to the Battle of Tours, but it wasn't really caused by it. Okay. And how many, when they kind of uh, recoiled, if you will, and um, settled more in the peninsula area, what, what approximate year would that have been? Well, again, and this, this points to, to how the process took place. It took uh, several decades for them to pull back south of, uh, south of the Pyrenees. Okay. So, you know, probably, you know, 770 or 780, something like that. Yeah, it gives a frame of reference. I'm trying to understand, was it, are we talking five years? Are we talking a century? Oh, no, it, it was a process. Yeah, okay. Um, a closing question. So when you travel through uh, southern Spain, there's certainly some cities that are mar very uh, clearly uh, have some Muslim influence to them, right? You think Sevilla, you think Malaga, you think Granada, Cordoba. Um, based on your research, was there any cities that you feel this caliphate um, and eventually becomes uh, an emirate um, influenced more, uh, like it's noteworthy for the amount of influence that they did versus just centering, and it's fine if this is the case, but versus just centering on, uh, let's say, Malaga because there's a fortress or Granada because there's a palace. But is there any, is there any cities that you feel is very worthwhile saying that uh, there was a lot of influence that might not be just summed up with a palatial uh, building? Well, you know, <clears throat> there was a Muslim presence in, the, in Spain for, uh, you know, nearly a thousand years. So Arabo-Islamic culture and influence is deeply woven into the fabric of Spanish culture, into its language, into its landscape, and its art and architectural heritage. So in a sense, it's kind of ubiquitous, right? On the other hand, there are, you know, if we're talking particularly about this early period, the mm -hmm. Umayyad period and the early Umayyad period, mm -hmm. then there's really a few places where you can find kind of significant remains of those. One is quite obvious, Cordoba right uh, the great mosque of cordoba which was founded by that exile 
Abdul Rahman I, that young prince who escaped, he's the one that founded that mosque. And it was built and added to over the course of, uh, you know, uh, two centuries by his descendants. And it was such a remarkable building that when uh, Christians conquered Cordoba in the 1200s, they couldn't bring themselves to destroy it. And so, I mean, it's really a singular building uh, in many ways, and it really sums up, uh, epitomizes uh, this early period of, of Islamic rule in Spain. Another good example, which is a little bit lesser known, is uh, one of the largest castles in Europe, which is the castle of Gormath, which is in the north of Spain. It's about uh, an hour and a half or two hours northeast of Madrid in a province called Soria. And uh, this fortress, uh, again, this immense fortress was constructed in uh, the 900s and was kind of the forward operating base of the caliphate. The caliphate, the caliphs and the emirs, they kind of, they didn't really want to, they gave up on trying to conquer uh, the north of Spain, which remained under Christian rule. They weren't really interested in conquering it. They preferred to uh, have it paying them tribute. And in, in order to, to keep that going and to destabilize the Christian kingdoms, uh, they would regularly launch raids against them, just to weaken them, take some stuff, etc. And this castle, Gormad, was where their armies would unite before they marched out uh, northwards and attacked the Christian Spanish kingdoms. Mm. So that's kind of a... You know, that's that's the best example of Umayyad military architecture in, in Spain. And then aside from that, there are little examples of civic architecture scattered around the peninsula. They've uncovered Muslim bathhouses that go back to the 10th century and 11th century. But most of the rest of the things you see in places like Malaga and, and, and so on, those fortifications tend to be later because fortifications tend to get improved over time. So those... Those three things, I think, are the best in my insights. Cordoba, the castle of Gormath, and then these little tidbits that you can find, bridges, bathhouses, things like that scattered around Spain. Okay, excellent. Thank you for coming on the show today, Brian. This has been a dynamic conversation. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure. I, uh, I hope I wasn't too boring, and uh, I'm happy to come back anytime you want. Thanks, Brian, and you did great today. Again, everybody, the couple books that Dr. Katlos has written that I'd mentioned at the start of the episode as examples were Muslims of Medieval Latin Christendom, circa 1050-1614, and Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain. I'll provide links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Brian and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.